tell you right now, I'm a little, um, a little concerned for visitors. Uh, if you're here for the first time or first of a few times, maybe the first time, maybe by if you've been here a few times, you've figured it out. You're not in for light fare this morning. It doesn't seem that snacks and Tic Tacs and things like that would give you the nourishment that you need to really go the distance. So if you're a visitor, let me just tell you, I'm glad you're here. We're glad you're here. You're gonna need your Bibles. You're gonna have to do some work in these next few minutes because we're gonna eat. It's what we do, and we're glad that you share it. You're sharing this time with us this morning. Let's pray. God, I pray in these next few minutes that you will be enjoyed. I pray that you would speak uh, clearly. I pray that you would show us the ultimate reality that we are living in and walking in that is illustrated, informed by so much Bible. I pray that in these next few minutes that we can park all the things that we're bringing to this moment, financial stuff, medical stuff, relational stuff, maybe even just a general distractedness. I pray that all of those things can be set aside in these next few minutes. We can sit at your feet and enjoy your story, that we can see ourselves in that story. We can see what you've done for us in Christ. I pray that you would speak with a clarity that I don't have in my head right now and that I'm not capable of that we can hear from the Holy Spirit this morning. In Christ's name we pray, amen. There are, I would say, seven essential stories to the whole redemptive story, little micro stories. And of those seven, I would say these are Christianity 101. If these are not stories that you're familiar with, then all you have to do is just go look in your Bible, find these stories, and eat these, and you're going to find new roots, new depth, new meaning, new purpose for everything that you're doing. Here are those stories. Creation, the fall, you could almost put those together. Creation, but I have se- I've separated them because I think they should be. Creation, fall, Abraham's call, Fourth is the exodus. Fifth is the exile, Babylonian exile. Sixth would be the incarnation. That would be the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And the seventh would be Pentecost, the birth of the church. Right in the center of this list is the exodus. It's where we're going to be camping out for the next couple of Sundays, in some ways equipping us to go back to Hebrews. We're not quite going back to Hebrews because we're not quite ready. See, the Hebrews church had the benefit of context. They had the benefit not only of the context of the letter, likely a little Jewish church in Rome, Jewish Christian church, I should qualify, in Rome, but they also had the context of being Jewish. 
They had so much story and so much history and likely they'd grown up celebrating the Passover each year and things like that where these details were built into them so that the Hebrews preacher could just mention an image and a whole story would come to mind. Could mention some detail that for us is a little bit off the radar, maybe a lot off the radar. So the job, at least of the Gentile preacher, is to climb into context so that we can get the point of what this message is in Hebrews that we're going back to in the next couple weeks. This week, we're going to spend our morning engaging this center of the list I gave you, number four, the Exodus. I'm going to do the best that I can to sort of unpack, well, no, I'm not going to unpack it, to sort of refresh us on the story because we're not Jews. We need to be refreshed. Even the Jews would likely need to be refreshed to some degree. I'm going to refresh us on the story in the first part of the sermon. Then we're going to look at the data points in our New Testament, i.e. post-Gospels and the birth of the church, for how the Exodus is used in the church. And then the last part of the, the, the morning, we're going to spend applying some so what's. Okay, the first part is refreshing us on the story of the Exodus. Second part is looking at the data points, collecting the data, so to speak, of how this is used in the New Testament and, and in the church, I should say. Let me qualify that. In the church. Um, and then lastly, how do we respond? What, what should this say to us? Okay. So now background. I have the daunting task of summarizing 2,000 years of story leading up to Christ and really, I want to focus in on the Exodus, but let me start all the way back at Genesis chapter 12. And let me tell you biblically where I would like, what, I, what I really want you to focus on this morning. Like the first part of this sermon, maybe just mostly listen. I'll give a few references for places where I'm reading an excerpt, where you're totally welcome to jump to that excerpt. But the first part of the, the sermon, I'm telling a story. The center part of the message where we're looking at the Exodus in the church and how this is used in the language of the church, I want you to turn to those passages, and I'll, t- and I'll give you those passages. I'm going to give you time to get there. And then the last part is application, so we won't need to turn any passages there. But maybe save your energy for the middle part of the sermon. It's not a lot. In fact, I'll, go, I'll give you, if you want to kind of have a sense, it's helpful to know your route just so you can know that you can make the journey. We only have five data points to look at and then six application points. And we're going to move through them quickly. So they're not going to be the typical sermon where we have like two or three points and spend, you know, gobs of time on each one. So, okay, everybody know the plan? Ready? Okay, we need a cheerleader to get us going here. Okay, I'm going to start back in Genesis chapter 12, the call of Abram. I'm going to start here because this is all part of the story of the Exodus. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Jump over to Genesis chapter 15, chapter five. God tells Abram, this is where he makes a covenant with Abram. He says, Abram, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. 
And Abram believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And then in verse 12, as the sun is going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners, sojourners in a land that's not theirs. And they will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. These words were spoken to Abram. Now, this is not down to the year, but this is the way I remember the big picture story, kind of how things unfold. About 2,000 years before Christ. It's about the time of Abram slash Abraham, Sarai, Sarah. About 2,000 years before Christ. He's speaking of something that's going to happen at this point about 500 years later. Another big moment the Exodus is about 1,500 years before Christ. So if you like to put a marker in the ground and kind of see chronologically the way things unfold, that's a good general reference. About 2,000 years before Christ, God speaks to Abram with these prophetic words. I'm gonna make a great nation of you, and this great nation are gonna be sojourners in a land that's not theirs, and I'm gonna bring them out, and they're gonna come out with many and great possessions. Now, Fast forward, not all the way to the Exodus, just yet. Fast forward, Abram, later Abraham, Sarai, later Sarah, against all odds, have a kid named Isaac. And then Isaac and Rebekah have Jacob and Esau. You may be familiar with the story. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. The blessing goes to Jacob. Jacob gets the birthright from his father. He gets the blessing from his father, and then the nation will be born through Jacob. Jacob marries Leah and Rachel and sort of indirectly both of their servants and they have the weirdest blended family story in all of our Bibles. They end up with 12 kids. One of those kids is beaten up and sold into slavery and ends up in Egypt, a boy named Joseph. A great example of God using the, uh, uh, taking all things, using all things for his own glory, even slavery, getting beaten up by your brothers, thrown into a pit, and then lied about when he's serving as a slave and serving well, ending up in prison, and then ending up only through God's design as a number two man in all of Egypt, right when famine hits in the land of Canaan, in the promised land. So there's Jacob, Leah, Rachel, all their 11 other boys and some daughters, and they're starving over there. Jacob says, go to Egypt and go get us some food while you guys are sitting around looking at each other. So the boys load up. They end up in front of their brother, unbeknownst to them. They end up in front of their brother. Brother gives them some food. The story fast forwards and the whole family ends up in Egypt in a little area of Egypt called Goshen. That's where the story of the birth of a nation takes place in Goshen. They move there, 11 brothers and their families. Joseph is already there. Jacob moves there. The whole family finds themselves planted in Egypt. And then the Israelites start multiplying. Over the course of 400 years, they grow into quite a people. In fact, the scriptures tell us that by the time the Exodus came around, 
there were about 600,000 men. 600,000 men, you can connect a family to each of those men, or most of those men, and imagine this is a quite a prolific people. They've grown and multiplied so much, in fact, that the later pharaohs are concerned they're going to take over. So many of these jokers running around here. So he does what he can do, or later, later Pharaoh does what he can do to prevent the continued growth and says, all the boys, I want them thrown into the Nile. Well, there's one little boy that survives that trip in the Nile in a wee little ark treated with bitumen and pitch. And in a work of what I would call poetry, not coincidence, the little boy whose name is Moses, his own mother ends up raising him and then he ends up spending his adult years in Pharaoh's home. He grows up there in Egypt, and there's some good stories of murder and intrigue and then eventual rejection, and Moses leaves Egypt to go be a shepherd. You can almost hear him say, I'm out of here. Well, meanwhile, in Exodus chapter 2, if you're reading along with me, Exodus chapter 2, beginning in verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God, watch these verbs. These are such sweet verbs. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. He heard their groaning. He remembered his covenant. He saw the people, and God knew. In the next chapter, in verse 7, it says, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come here, Moses, from a burning bush. I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. God plucks Moses out of the wilderness, though he's reluctant, though he's stuttering. God plucks him out of there and he says, you're gonna be the one that's gonna lead my people out of Egypt. And in Exodus chapter six, verse two, God spoke to Moses and said to him, Moses, I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as El Shaddai, God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant." Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh, the Lord, 
and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who's brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into a land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am Yahweh, the Lord. So Moses leads this people out of Egypt through God's mighty acts of judgment called the plagues. There are 10 of them. The Nile turned to blood, the frogs, gnats, flies, dead livestock, boils, hail, locusts, a darkness that could be felt. And then finally and worse than all of the others is the Passover, where the firstborn in every single Egyptian home, of livestock even, dies in their sleep that night. Then God leads them out of Egypt leads them up to the Red Sea where they're facing the Red Sea. They got the army of Pharaoh behind them and they watch together as Yeshua, salvation, folds the sea in on top of the armies of Egypt. It's a passage worth reading, Exodus chapter 14. Here's how it went down, verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us up out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see Yeshua the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. What a great, great passage. After the nation, after the sea folds in on the Egyptian army, then Moses and the people in chapter 15 sing a song. It's sort of funny if you really think about the context. They're floating dead bodies in the Red Sea in front of them. The Egyptian army is floating there in front of them, and they're going to sing a song. And I'm convinced that they sung it to the tune of Another One Bites of Dust. A horse and his rider he's thrown into the sea. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down in the depths like a stone. You can almost hear it to the tune. They move on to the base of Sinai where they receive the law. And the ink is hardly dry on the stone tablets. And they rebel and prove how miserably they fail in regards to the law with the golden calf. And there in that context, Moses, giving us a beautiful picture of what Christ has done for us, Moses mediates for an undeserving people. He says, I'll take their place. Let me take their place. He appeals to God's name and God's fame and his renown. Fast forward to just after they left, the base of Sinai, they send out spies into the promised land, 12 of them, one from each tribe. 
For the longest, I thought that the worst thing that the nation of Israel could have done was the, the golden calf. It's pretty graphic when you think about it. It's pretty ugly. But more and more I'm studying, more and more I'm realizing through the eyes of the Hebrews preacher, the greater crime, that was, that was a horrible sin, but the greater crime was what they did when the spies came back. Ten of those 12 came back with a false report. Ten of the 12 came back and said, we laugh. I teach fifth and sixth grade Bible study on Wednesday nights, and we laugh talking about this land and what the, what the spies came back saying, that the land was full of Justin Wades everywhere, these giants. Justin's not here this morning, so I didn't embarrass him, so that's perfect. The land is full of these giants, and they're just too big for us. What I'm realizing, the more and more I study through the eyes of the Hebrews preacher, I'm realizing that the sin of unbelief was even worse than the sin of idolatry. When they didn't trust God, when they didn't believe the report from Caleb and Joshua, and in fact wanted to stone them, that's when God said, okay, this wilderness that was going to be your, your route to the promised land is now going to become, for this generation, it's going to become a big graveyard, and you're going to wander around in this wilderness until every single one of the first generation, apart from Caleb and Joshua, is dead. Markers, grave markers everywhere. That was the consequence of unbelief. So God moves them slowly, meandering, until all who didn't believe the accurate report are dead to the base of another mountain, Mount Nebo, and there he prepares them for their move into the promised land, the land of Canaan. Now, most people don't realize this story that I just summarized for you that took place over the course of about 500 years, most people don't realize this is one of the greatest treasures in our Bible that's illustrating our story. If I could only grab one story in our Bible apart from the incarnation to make sense of the incarnation, it would be the Exodus. It is one of the central stories in our Bible, so much so that our New Testament writers used it or alluded to it often in Jewish churches and Gentile churches. It was the go-to goods for the New Testament writers. For the early church pastors, it was the go-to instrument. If I have a little wee part to play in the life of this church, it will be to build the exodus into this church. I hope and pray it will be to build it into this church where you see that you too are in an exodus, where you too see the beauty and the relevance of this story. You're gonna need these goods for our journey back in Hebrews and frankly, I think you need these goods for the rest of your lives. It's central. Now, for the data points, I am gonna have you turn to these passages. The first is Luke chapter nine. We're gonna move quickly through these five data points. And these aren't all of the references to the Exodus in our New Testament. There are many allusions. These are the most obvious References, And we're going to grab the data points, and then together we're going to consider six things that this should mean for us. 
These data points are dealing with relevance for the church of an ancient story. For us at this point, a story that's 3,500 years old, the story of the Exodus. The first passage I had you turn into is Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 28. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he's praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. This is the mountain transfiguration. This is the moment where that's taken place. And look what happens in verse 30. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. If you have an English standard version down in the bottom of your Bible, I want you to look at that tiny little note right there next to that little number one. That word departure is Greek for exodus. If we're reading in English, we miss it. But if we do the extra work, at least of looking at our notes, then we can see that what he's talking about here with Moses and Elijah is he's talking about his own exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. First of all, enjoy the beauty that Jesus is talking with two guys about an exodus, and one of those guys happens to be Moses. Who better to talk to about his own exodus than the guy that led the nation of Israel through their exodus? I can only imagine some of the things that Moses prepared Jesus for. Now, Jesus, let me tell you something. They're going to be stiff-necked. Now, Jesus, let me tell you something. They're going to resist your leadership. Now, Jesus, let me tell you something. They're going to grumble and complain even when food is dropping from the sky for them. And Jesus, let me tell you something. They're going to make an idol of anything that stands still, and most things it won't. I can only imagine the sort of things that Moses must have told our Savior. And you've got to enjoy the beauty, though, that if Jesus is having his own exodus that he's preparing for, that he's going to do and accomplish through the work of the cross, doesn't it make sense to think that his people, too, will have an exodus? You have to ask yourself the question, was this his own exodus or was he just leading the way for the rest of our exodus? I think the rest of the biblical story would point toward the latter, that he's the first fruits of that journey and the rest of, just, the rest of us are just following his lead in his exodus. The next passage I want you to turn to is 1 Corinthians 5. We're going to stay in 1 Corinthians for these next two data points. 1 Corinthians 5, and I'm going to look at an additional passage in 1 Peter. 1 Corinthians 5, 7. I'm going to start in verse 6, which will give you a second to get, to get there. Your boasting is not good, Corinthian church. Now, just don't let it be lost on you that these references that we're about to engage in these next few minutes are going to probably the most worldly church in our Bible. The Corinthian church got two letters in our Bible, but there are at least, I know for, we know for sure, one other letter that's referenced, possibly two other letters. Most folks think that the Corinthian church got four letters they got some serious airtime and pastoring from Paul because this church had one foot in the world at all at any given moment. And here he's encouraging a church with a foot in the world with these sort of teachings. Your boasting's not good. Do you not know that a little leaven, referring to sin there, leavens the whole lump? 
And think about what, what he's pointing to. He's pointing back to the Passover meal. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Watch what he says next. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Christ, our, the church's Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Listen to the other reference that I was gonna share with you in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18. And I don't turn there, just listen. If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. How can we possibly make sense of what Christ is to us without the story of the Passover? You climb into the Passover, you see the details of an unblemished innocent whose blood is shed and slathered over doorpost and lentil, which is the only thing that keeps them from judgment that night and is also the instrument by which God identifies them for deliverance. What a beautiful treasure he's given us in the Passover story and in the import here from Paul and Peter that Christ is our Passover lamb. Now, why would we need a Passover lamb unless we too are in the throes of a mighty act of judgment and unless we too are in the process of going, undergoing an exodus of our own? The third data point is in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And this data point involves the entire first six verses of chapter 10. Listen to this. I want you to know, brothers, remember one of the most worldly churches in our Bibles, but brothers nonetheless, that our fathers, now there's continuity right there. He's speaking to a Gentile church and he's referring back to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob as our fathers. There's continuity in the story. It's not their fathers. It's our fathers, Gentile church. I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. He's referring to the Exodus right there. He's referring specifically to crossing the Red Sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. He's alluding there to supper and he's alluding, alluding there to the role of Christ as guide. And then in first, verse five, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. That's the ones who died in the wilderness for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Now, there's about four or five things here in this one passage. First of all, their baptism into Christ is illustrated with their father's baptism into Moses. Now, two things. First of all, that's license to, within reason, to use prefiguring and types in our Bible. Moses, just like Noah and others, is a prefigure and type of our Savior. If you want to understand Jesus, go see what Moses did. It's licensed to go back and look. 
I can't remember what the second thing was, but that first thing's important, so we'll just leave it at that. Their baptism into Christ is illustrated by Israel's passage through the Red Sea. That was the second thing, and that's equally important. Their baptism into Christ is illustrated by their baptism through the Red Sea and baptism into Moses. Secondly, their supper is illustrated and informed by Israel's manna and water and quail. It's provision from above. It makes me think about Jesus sharing these words in John chapter 6. Just listen. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Hear that, church. I'm your manna. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. Because this bread came down from heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. Eat all the manna you want. You're still going to die. But whoever feeds on this bread from above will live forever. We understand our bread by looking at their bread. That's what, the, what Paul is appealing to in the Corinthian church. And then in verse 4, Paul is encouraging them to realize that as Christ guided their fathers through the wilderness, Christ is guiding them through their wilderness in Corinth under the heavy hand of the Roman Empire. And we can translate that to us. I hope you realize that. Christ is just as much guiding us through our wilderness now. And that what happened to the Israelites happened for the purpose of, the instru of instruction for the Corinthian church. What happened to our fathers, let's go ahead and grab them as our fathers too, happened for the purpose of instructing us in our wilderness. This didn't stop at the Corinthian church because we're all in our version of the same thing. He is our baptism. He is our supper. He is our guide. And these things happen as instruction for us. The fourth data point is in Hebrews chapter three, turn there. This is where we're gonna be spending a lot of time the next few weeks, but I do wanna at least share the passage now. Hebrews chapter three, beginning in verse seven. What takes place in the rest of Hebrews chapter three and a good portion of Hebrews chapter four is the Hebrews preacher is encouraging this church on the bubble with the realization that the heavenly rest that we face is illustrated in their father's rest in the promised land in their journey and rest in the promised land. Here's a passage, Hebrews chapter three, verse seven. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. He's pointing back to their grumbling, to their complaining. He's pointing back to their golden calf and he's pointing back to the sin of unbelief when they didn't trust the, 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 the true spies, Caleb, and Joshua. He says, therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. And I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. They shall not enter the promised land. And he's speaking to a church making the same claim. If you don't believe me now, you will not enter my rest is the message of Hebrews chapter three and four. You will not enter the heavenly rest. I'm hoping to equip you right now to really get the message of Hebrews by spending time today considering that we too are in an exodus and that we too are moving toward a promised land or not. 
I want you to hear that. I know it's not an exciting sermon. I know it's not. And I know that minds wander, so I'm going to grab your mind. I'm going to grab it right back. Get it. Come here. I want you to hear what I just said. My whole goal this morning, and I believe the Lord's goal in ordaining this sermon this morning, is that you would see yourself in an exodus. And that you would see yourself on the way to a promised land or not. This isn't just history. This is our story. As it's informing the Hebrews church, it's got to inform us. The last data point is the one that makes me swallow the hardest. It's in the exciting book that many of you probably read this morning, the book of Jude. Turn to the book of Jude. I'll tell you where it is. It's right in front of Revelation because some of you probably don't know where it is. I wouldn't know unless I was just in it this week. I would, but I don't want those of you who don't know to feel bad. <laughs> Jude, only one chapter. And the verse is verse five. It's crazy. I'm gonna read just for the sake of context while you're turning there, starting in verse three. Jude is writing about false teachers here. He said, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. He's talking about false teachers there. Now listen to what he says next. This is crazy. I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Just look at the two verbs that Jesus did there. Jesus saved those people out of the land of Egypt and afterward destroyed those who did not believe. The same Jesus, the same Yeshua that parted the Red Sea, the same Yeshua that traveled with them, the rock, is the same Yeshua that says, you don't believe me, you're gonna die in the wilderness. The same Yeshua that saved them is the same Yeshua that's destroying them. This tells us a few things. First of all, it tells us that whatever our context might tell us, whatever movies might tell us, whatever the general thought about Jesus might tell us, Jesus wasn't and isn't nice. It's one of the lamest Christian teachings that I know of is that Jesus is nice. Walks around like Michael Bolton, just forgiving everybody. Michael Bolton, hair, back when he had the hair part in the middle, flowing, forgive you, forgive you too. <laughs> I heal you. I forgive you. It's all good. You read a passage like this and go, whoa, wait a second. That Jesus is parting the Red Sea. Boom. That Jesus is folding the Red Sea in on top of an entire Egyptian army. That Jesus is delivering a people out of Egypt. And the very same Jesus says, you don't believe me? You more scared of big giants than you are of me? You're going to die in the wilderness. It's going to be a big 40-year-old grave, a big 40-year-old funeral, a big graveyard for you because you don't believe me. Jesus wasn't nice. Jesus was true. And sometimes true isn't nice. 
Do you hear that, people of God? Sometimes true isn't nice. Jesus in Matthew chapter 10, verse 34 says, do not think that I've come to bring peace on the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. I say it's one of the lamest Christian teachings because it's not a Christian teaching and it undermines the entire work of what's, what's coming. He's coming back on a white horse. He's coming back to do war, to do battle. And we could do with some fear of this Jesus. Man, he's not a chump, turns out. He's not Michael Bolton. So what should this do to us? Five, no, six applications. First, this is probably the most important of the bunch because this will fuel all the others. First, this should condition us, this exodus, if we too embrace it and say, okay, all right, New Testament preachers, we're not just using it as nifty illustrations, but they're using it because it is their story and I'm using it this morning because it's our story. If we'll do that, then it's going to condition us to what's ultimate reality. It's gonna inform ultimate reality. If we see continuity in the house in Hebrews 3, where Jesus is Lord over that house and he's Lord over our house, if we see continuity in the house, if we see continuity of Christ leading Israel in the wilderness and him leading us in our wilderness, if we see continuity of the same Lord that delivered the Israelites, destroyed those who didn't believe, if we see that continuity, this should help us see that we're not reading some old irrelevant history lesson when we read the Exodus. We're reading our story. We're reading our story. And it should bring us to realizing this is ultimate reality. They help us make sense of God. They help us make sense of our context. They may help, make, help us make sense of our wilderness and what God is up to in our wilderness. They help us make sense of church, what we're doing together. They help us make sense of message, sermon, preaching, singing. They help us make sense of all those things. Some of our songs are the song on the edge of the Red Sea where we're singing about all the dead Egyptians. And other songs were pining for Jerusalem while we're in exile in Babylon. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and there we wept. These stories help us make sense of God, of ourselves. They help us make sense of what we're prone to. And for Paul with the Corinthian church, it was the goods that he brought these guys who were living worldly. He's saying, Corinthian church, this is your ultimate reality. Christ is your baptism. Christ is your bread from heaven. Christ is your leader in the wilderness. Those things were written down for your instruction. It's your ultimate reality, Corinthian church, and it's our ultimate reality. But see, the problem is most of the time whenever we do New Testament preaching, the temptation is to just jump right into it without engaging this context, without spending a few Sundays like we're spending right now, or where you might read devotionally, and you need to realize what you're doing is you're parachuting into a context that you may not understand. Think about these guys that were real parachuters in the army or you know, other people parachuting and stuff too, but mainly the army where they jump into the enemy territory and they hit the ground, you don't know where the enemy is. You don't even know which way is north. You've been in the air. You're like, you have to have a compass. 
You have to pull up your, your binoculars and figure out where are the bad guys. You might have to duck on some occasions where somebody's shooting at you. You have to look at the land and try and figure out the terrain features, figure out where am I on the map. That's what we're doing when we go back and engage these stories. We're making sense of where we landed. We're making sense of where we're going. It is our ultimate reality. Secondly, some of these are going to be really quick. We're moving towards something better. It should remind us that we're moving towards something better. No matter how crummy it gets in the wilderness, there's always the hope and realization that there's something really great in store. And it gets crummy for everybody at times. It does. These are the sort of things that should encourage us, that there is a land flowing with milk and honey, that there is a land where fruit hanging from the branches. We're cisterns there full that we didn't build, houses that we didn't build, that we can live, in, live on, live in. What we're promised in eternity is really, really, really great, and it should, in fact, affect how we endure here. Abraham was living for the city to come. He wasn't even living for his Canaan. He lived in a tent. He was living for the city to come and God counted to him as faith and righteousness. What will he count to us if we're thinking about what's in store? And that's what fuels us. Third, we have only one guide in route on this journey. We have only one guide in route to the promised land. On my phone, I have an iPhone and a lot of y'all probably do. You know, you use the little mapping feature and you say, I'm, I'm going to use current location and I'm going to go to location X. And then it gives you three or four different options of how to get there. And you can kind of pick, well, I know there's construction here or I want to see this blue bonnets on this route or if you're kind of into that, you know. <laughs> I'm not, I just thought you might be. A reason to go on a different route. Well, this route, there's only one route and there's only one leader and that's Christ, Period. Paul appealed to the Corinthian church with that, the reminder that Christ was the leader in the wilderness. Christ was the rock that traveled with them. These passages I was thinking about connect to what we have in Christ as a leader. We have that through his Bible. I've been doing this 10 years now almost, and I can't tell you how many sermons I've preached encouraging and appealing, people, appealing to people to read this. And I'm gonna keep doing it because it's all we've got. But it's so much more than all we've got. That sort of sounds like that's it. It's everything. If you read it, if you sit under teaching often, if you sit under preaching weekly, then you're stirred up by way of reminder of what ultimate reality is and you know which way to go and you're walking according to the word that became flesh. This will not depart from his character and who he is and was. This is our guide. It made me think of Psalm 119, where the psalmist wrote an entire psalm according to the Hebrew alphabet. Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalit. All the way through, it would be like you being so into something. I use this illustration with my kids on, on Wednesday night. It would be like you being so into we, all the we games that you write a poem about we using the alphabet. 
we is always, it's always great. It's available. I'm, now this is off the cuff, so I don't have a lot of A's for we. I really don't care about we one iota. But could you imagine somebody would be totally into we if they're gonna write a poem using the alphabet about we? You'd be like, dude, you have an idol. That's over the top. But the psalmist wrote an entire psalm about the word of God according to the Hebrew alphabet. And it is the way that we move. It is the direction that we go. Listen to these passages. 119.9, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. How can you possibly hope to do that if you're not saturating yourself in it and with it? Verse 25, Psalm 119, my soul clings to the dust, give me life according to your word. Verse 28, my soul melts away for sorrow, strengthen me according to your word. Verse 65, you've dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. 107, I'm severely afflicted, give me life, O Lord, according to your word. 169, let my cry come before you, O Lord, give me understanding according to your word. Verse 170, let my plea come before you, deliver me according to your word. Man, the route is only following Christ. And the way we follow Christ is according to his word. It's something that's gotta be part of our lives. Devotionally, reading your Bibles at a devotional level, sitting under teaching and preaching. God gave gifts to the church he gave people to the church, the pastor, teacher, the apostle, prophet, the evangelist, to equip the saints for the work of service. How can you possibly think you can be equipped for that work without those dudes? If those dudes are making much of themselves in it, then that's hard to stomach. But if those guys are just like, man, they're just out of the way. They're just messengers. God's using them. Then sit under it. You need it. You're gonna get lost on the journey because you won't know what, which way to go. But if you sit under it and you submit yourself to it and you eat it, then man, you're going on the right direction. The fourth thing, this is a quick one, we're provided for on the way, like manna and quail dropping from the sky as metaphor for daily provision that needs to be gathered daily and reminds us daily of our dependence on him. It's just enough and it's just in time. We have had so many examples of that in this body. One of the most recent examples I'm thinking of, Lance and Sarah came back up here to buy a van from Mexico. Vehicles in, in down to the southern tip of Mexico are not the nicest vehicles in the world. So they came all the way up here to get a vehicle. They're gonna drive all the way back down to the southernmost state in Mexico. And they came back with a plan of buying a $6,000 van. And I'm like... Okay, um, ooh, all right, that's gonna be a challenge. And the whole time I'm thinking, man, we gotta figure something out. We're gonna have to, we have to cough up some more money here. They can't find anything worth anything for $6,000. And we met with Lance last week, and Lance says, yeah, man, I found a van, and we're just waiting on the title. Said, you, you did? What's the deal on it? He said, man, he starts telling me all the data and details on the van. I'm like, that was a total score. That was a scandal that you found that van for $5,500 all said and done. But that's an example. God is seldom late and never early in delivering manna and quail for God's people if we'll depend on him. And we'll just ask him and we'll trust him. It's there on the ground every morning. 
And that's one example of many in this body where God has been just in time, in the nick of time, showing up and making himself and his name great through his timing. The fifth thing, understanding that we're in an exodus should help us remember that we're temporary here. We're temporary here. If you can climb into the imagery and the story and imagine what it was like during that 40 years as they're moving through the wilderness, you know, a day or two here, a week or two here, and they pick up and fold their tents up and they march off. If one day you're laying in your little bed, I don't know what kind of beds they use, but a little mat, you know, you're laying there and it's early in the morning, sun's just come up and you hear beep, 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 beep. You're like, man, what is that? We don't have alarm clocks. We don't have electricity. What is that? And you step outside your tent and your neighbor in their neighboring tribe is having a mighty machine backing up in there. He's got one of those big dozers and he's scooping up a bunch of earth, earth movers, and he's got this big dump truck backing up, beep, beep, and he's loading up dirt, hauling dirt off, and he's laying a big old deep foundation. And you're like, man, what are you doing? Man, I'm gonna build me a house and a pool. Dude, what are you thinking? We're moving out in a couple days or a week or two. What are you thinking getting a foundation in the ground, a pool in the ground? We just built a pool last year, so that's why it's pretty funny. Mighty machines. What are you doing doing that kind of stuff when we're going to be moving out any minute? This is not anti-mansion or anti-pool after all we dug one last year. It's the character of that kind of movement that we can spend ourselves in ways that would be as ridiculous as somebody who's on a journey through the wilderness building a mansion at a two-week stop. I mean, what are you thinking? We're gonna be moving out any time now. We can live our lives spending them on something that renders us static and immovable. Something that we can spend ourselves on that not only won't travel with us into the promised land, but something that could very well keep us from it. Something we could love more than moving with the rock through the wilderness. Being conditioned by the Exodus and seeing it as your story should leave you more agile should leave you more mobile, should leave you more responsive, should leave you more attentive. Thinking about some time where you might visit somebody's house and they're like, hey, um, you're like, I'm not going to be there long. I only have a couple minutes. And you go in and they're like, hey, man, take your coat off, kick your feet, your shoes off, kick your feet up, make yourself comfortable. You're like, no, I'm only going to be here a few minutes. Come on in here, man. Un Ungird your loins. Lay your staff down over there. That's biblical imagery. I'm not getting graphic or anything. It's like a belt. Man, put your staff down. Like, no, sir. I got to be ready. I got to be ready. I'm, I'm a sojourner. I'm not here forever. So I'm not going to live like I am. And the last thing, and this is probably the most ministers to me more than any right now, right now where I am is that 
if, if you climb into the Exodus as not just an ancient story, but as your story, then you realize a big part of our journey is just to plod. Applaud, P-L-O-D. If you're a mountaintop junkie, you're still at Sinai. And man, all of us have some of that in us. I left last Sunday feeling like, Lord, take me home this week. I'm ready to go on and be with you right now. Last Sunday, if you were here last Sunday, you know, it's like one of those Sundays where you're like, man, clouds parted, God spoke. We had a sweet time in the throne room. Oh, man, that was just it. And then all week this morning, I've been like, okay, we're getting back to a little plod. We're plodding, but a big part of the journey is a plod where you wake up, you read your Bible, you eat some grape nuts, and you go back to bed about eight hours later, 12 hours later. Some days are just like that. And some days you think, man, I didn't hear God speak. I didn't, the ground didn't quake. I didn't see the Red Sea part. I didn't, didn't do anything other than eat some manna and some quail and drank some water and I'm time to go back to bed. Realizing so much of our journey is just a plod. If you're a mountaintop junkie though, you're gonna think that God has moved on without you or that God's just not all that interesting. Man, a big part of the journey is getting up, enjoying him, taking those few faithful steps he's given you in that day and going to bed and doing it again tomorrow. That's a big part of the journey. We're gonna have our supper now and I wanna share a story while we are passing out the elements. So if my deacons, our deacons can pass out our, our, our elements here I'm going to share a story that's very relevant given where we are, this, where we've been this morning. And then we'll take and eat and we'll continue on in song. The story comes from Exodus chapter 12. I'd encourage you just to maybe to listen, unless you are one of those that just needs to see it. I'm going right from the text, but if, if you want to... Just listen and just imagine this night. As you're holding this bread and this cup, just imagine this night. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's according to their father's houses, a lamb for household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire. 
with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. When Jesus sat with his disciples on the eve of his arrest and crucifixion, he had a meal with them and he had the Passover meal. He said, do this in remembrance of me. When he said this, he was talking about the Passover meal. Do this thing you've been doing for 1,500 years, but do it now based on what I'm going to do tomorrow in remembrance of me. We're taking that Passover meal right now, remembering our Lord. I am the Lord, he says. The, Lord shall, or the blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. That's what we're doing right now. We have our feast every week. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt." Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leavens to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he's a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwelling places. You shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that's in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts door with the blood that's in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of this house until the morning for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. Man, please enjoy that right now. When he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service, mom and dad? 
You shall say, It's the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and they worshiped. The people bowed their heads and they worshiped. And the people of Israel went and did so. So the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. Let's take and eat. Let's take and drink. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, just as God promised Abram, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. Let me pray. We'll continue in Psalm. God, I'm so thankful for so much Bible. I'm so thankful that you've given us so much context. Lord, I'm thankful that that context is at our fingertips, likely in every home connected to every person in this room. And Lord, I pray right now, I pray that that context will be enjoyed and read and discussed and considered. Lord, I pray when we are especially feeling the plod that we'll be encouraged that that's a big part of the journey. And whether we think it or not, whether we feel it or not, that we're moving in the direction of a land that's been promised. Lord, I pray that we'll be faithful taking those few steps you've given us in a day or running whatever distance you've charted out for us on a day. It will be faithful in small things or large things. Lord, I pray that some of these truths that we've engaged today, that our New Testament preachers and writers use so freely and so often, that they will become part of the fabric of who we are, that it will become part of our language that our kids, as they look up and they see us take our supper and as they ask mom and dad, what are we doing? What does this mean? That moms and dads can take them to what this means. That families together can enjoy our Passover lamb. And Lord, we are so thankful that the bread that came down out of heaven for us brings life, that we'll never hunger We will not die in a wilderness. We enjoy him this morning in song, in fellowship, in sermon, in giving, in preaching, and all that's in store. We turn it over to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.